Welcome to Uncomfortable Is Okay, where we explore the science, the stories, and the strategies of getting out of your comfort zone, navigating challenge, and doing the hard things that make life worth living. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. Uncomfortable Is Okay is brought to you by Health Mentors. Health Mentors is a performance well-being company that helps change makers dial in their health and improve their performance in the middle of a chaotic world. We offer one-on-one health mentoring services, as well as a range of workshops and workplace solutions, all the way up to supporting organizations with their well-being strategy. You can find out more at healthmentors.nz or get in contact with Chris at healthmentors.nz. Hey everyone, Chris here. Unfortunately, I currently have COVID, so we don't have a new podcast for you this week. But what I've done is I've pulled out one of our most popular episodes from the archives. This is a chat that I had a good few years ago now with James Clare, who's the author of Atomic Habits. Uh, And our conversation for context is the time that James's book was coming out so I managed to to get lucky and organize an interview with him around that time Uh, and especially coming into the end of the year talking about habits thinking about resolutions thinking about making positive change for ourselves I thought this would be a great episode to uh, go over again and and think about how we can embed positive habits in our lives I've got a lot out of James's work I hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you haven't read James's book, Atomic Habits, yet, then grab it. It is fantastic. James, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thanks for taking some time to sit down and have a chat with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. And James, like, I want to I wanna go deep and talk about habits with you, but I think it's, it's always nice to know a little bit more about yourself. So where were you? Where were you born? Where where did you grow up? And were there any kind of formative experiences in your youth that have have led you down this path? Hmm. Well, I was born in Hamilton, Ohio, so smallish town in Midwestern the United States. And I grew up in the same house my entire childhood. My parents still live there now. I spent a good amount of time on my grandparents' farm, which they were like five minutes away from us. So a fair bit of my childhood was like outside or in the country. I spent like most of the weekends walking through the fields and playing with my cousins there and just like doing, I don't know, various things in the woods, which was fun. And then athletics were a big part of my upbringing. So I would say that that was something that definitely played a formative role for me. So My dad played professional baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals in the minor leagues for a little while. And so, of course, growing up, I wanted to, you know, be a professional baseball player too. And I also played basketball and swam and, you know, did a variety of other competitive sports early on. And then ultimately ended up focusing on baseball as well and played that through college. And uh, there are all sorts of lessons that you learn from playing sports. But that was probably the place where I, like, ultimately over the long run, I played baseball for 18 years in total. And the last four years were where I really like came into my own, both as a leader and I think as a person. Some of that is the time of my life, you know, 18 to 22 is a very formative period to begin with. And you're kind of coming into adulthood, but, but it was also just the avenue through which I had to push myself a lot, both as a leader on the team and then also individually, because I had a very serious injury. I was hit in the face with a baseball bat and it was like a very long, arduous process to recover from that. It took eight or nine months. And so bouncing back from that 
and then four or five years later, ending up becoming an academic All-American and kind of feeling like I had fulfilled my potential as an athlete. That was a very important process in my own personal growth. And then the second thing from my childhood that I would say was, was very crucial was academics. So I always enjoyed learning. I think I'm just kind of like curious. I, you know, some kids hate school. I, I liked school. I thought it was fun. I, I enjoyed investigating new things. And so I appreciate that part. And then the third and final aspect of my childhood that I would say played a big role was family. And that of course is true in many ways for many people. For me in particular, my grandparents played a really big role in my life. Every Sunday for the first 18 years of my life, my family and all of my extended family went over to my grandparents' house and my grandma made dinner for 18 people. So that was like all I knew was, you know, like I, I didn't realize that wasn't normal at first, but like that was, that was just, that's what we did every weekend. So the influence of cousins, uncles, grandparents on my life was, was pretty strong early on. And uh, I think that there are all sorts of ways that that ripples into what I do and how I act now. Mm. Yeah. And I, I hear you. I come from quite a large extended family as well. Lots of uncles and aunties and cousins. And uh, yeah, it's amazing that the kind of the, how close knit you can be as a big family. And uh, I, I really enjoyed growing up that way as well. And I, I find it strange when people say, oh, I don't want to go and visit my family. I don't want to kind of go and go and spend time with them. I was like, that's just really weird to me, but obviously that's the <laughs> environment that I grew up in. One thing that you mentioned is that, uh, that you loved learning and you, and you really enjoyed academics and school and mm. what sort of role did your family play in that? Did they try and cultivate a sense of curiosity in you to, to kind of explore ideas and explore concepts? Well, I certainly think my parents did a very good job of always praising myself and my siblings for effort and for, for working hard. That, that was, I think, a, a strong suit of theirs. I mean, they were great parents and in that way that really helped. The sense of curiosity, I don't know. I've thought about that a little bit. I, I think part of it honestly is just genetic or personality. I, th I think that I'm like wired for that. Like, I don't know how to turn that off. For me, like, you know, if you told me like to not be curious or to not ask questions, like, I don't really know how I would go about doing that. Cause it just kind of feels like my default mode. But then I look at other people and it doesn't seem to be at the same way for them. You know, they have strengths in other areas. I don't know. I perhaps to a certain degree you can cultivate it, but I don't know. Cultivating curiosity is hard. I think the, the only way that I've seen that you can do it is very effortful on the other person's end, which is continually dripping out little bits of things that are just on the edge of someone's ability right then. So like asking them to work on a, a math problem that's just a touch beyond what they can do right now, or asking them to read a passage that's just beyond their current reading ability. And that is a very effective way to keep people engaged and motivated. You know, you can imagine in atomic habits, I refer to this as the Goldilocks rule, which is that humans experience peak levels of motivation when they're working on a task of just manageable difficulty. So not too hard, not too easy, just right. And you can imagine playing a tennis match against someone, you know, if you play against a professional, then that gets boring pretty quickly because you lose every point. If you play against a five-year-old, that gets boring pretty quickly because you win every point. But if you play against someone who's basically your peer, who's more or less your equal, you want a few points, they want a few points. You have a chance to win the match, but only if you really try, that's a very motivating place to be. And so being able to do that from a learning standpoint in the classroom is a really powerful way to drive curiosity in people, but it's also very arduous and effortful because you always have to be understanding both where someone is and trying to nudge them a little bit and push them. 
So I think there are probably some opportunities for that in the future. I think we'll see much more personalized education. And so we could use, you know, computers and AI to kind of give people like a more tailored experience for whatever their level is. And perhaps that'll help them stay engaged. But, but I don't know, because another big part of engagement is social connection. And so having a teacher or a peer work with you, you feel that connection and that makes you feel engaged. Staring at a screen, even if it's the ideal level of engagement, might not be able to provide the same level of connection. Interestingly, video games have figured this out really well. Video games are in many cases designed to keep the player just on the cusp of their ability. So if you're not doing as well, they give you more power ups and more weapons and, you know, things within the game. If you're doing really well, then they increase the difficulty of the, the challenges that you're facing. So it's kind of like tailored to keep a player right on the edge, which of course keeps people engaged. So I think it's definitely possible, but there are some questions to figure out as well. Interesting. And do you see that kind of rolling out into the more adult education as well as, as well as the schooling? Because yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, I think that like that is one of the challenges when you finish school, when you finish college or university as well, and then you get out into, into the work environment that sometimes you end up with a job or end up with a career that actually pushes you along and kind of cultivates that sort of steps you outside of your, your comfort zone or kind of creates that sort of edge that you, that you need to live on to create growth and, and stay engaged. And as you said, it's, it's not for everyone, but if you don't end up with a career or a job like that, and you're one of those people that, that thrives on that opportunity, then it's really quite challenging to drive that along yourself without that much external accountability. I think it certainly will influence adults as well as kids. I mean, in many ways that's already happening. I think that. A lot of these services, the most effective ones kind of change behavior or teach you something, drive curiosity, lead to learning through like a back door rather than right, you know, directly to your face. So like the most direct way to do it would be to say, we're going to start a school and it's going to be an online school and you can take this class and so on. But oftentimes behavior changes through these trap doors that don't, you don't think that's what you're doing, but something else is happening. So for example, you know, a couple of years ago, Pokemon Go became this like worldwide craze and everybody was running around playing the game and looking for Pokemon and their kind of like augmented reality thing with their phone. And if you think about it, that was probably the most effective walking or exercise app that had ever been created, but it was through a back door. It wasn't, you know, people were walking miles a day trying to find these Pokemon in this video game, but they weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to go walk five miles, you know, which would have been the more direct way to say, we're going to create a walking app and it's going to get you to change. I think that Twitter, for example, is a place where I've seen this a little bit for adults and learning already, you know, in a sense, who you follow on Twitter is kind of like creating your own little city. And you need to be very careful about who the citizens of that city are, because if you choose the right people, you end up with this really fruitful, amazing environment where you come across all these interesting ideas and hear compelling things. It can be very eye-opening. And I only realized this recently because I spent many hours, dozens of hours going through who different people were following that I like appreciated their view. And then I would, you know, kind of review each one and be like, all right, what are the last 20 tweets that this person sent out? And, you know, are they, do I feel like they're a very high signal? They would have been adding value to my life or not. And, uh, you know, I ended up with a few hundred people that it was a really nicely curated list. And now I'm learning all kinds of things from Twitter, but again, it's kind of through a back door, you know, I'm, I'm using Twitter cause it's engaging and interesting, 
but I'm not thinking like, oh, I should take a class on, you know, psychology or AI or whatever, all the other things that people are talking about. So I feel like there are probably opportunities in the future to maybe do that in a more structured way. You know, like other people's experience on Twitter is very different than mine because they're following a different city of people. So it doesn't, it doesn't turn into this learning engine for all adults. It's only for the ones that spend the time to curate it right now. So maybe there's a way for there to be like that back door to learning, but it's also more automatic and less effortful. Definitely. And I think, I mean, you, you talk a lot about setting your environment up to promote good habits. And I think that's, that, that's quite the good example actually of, of a way to shape your environment to optimize what it is that you're, that you're trying to achieve. Mm. And I mean, often we'll, we'll think of kind of habit creation and sort of starting a new habit is active motivation. It's an active willpower to get through that first, whether it's kind of 21 days or whether it's 365 days that you need to, to start a habit, depending on what habit it is and, and where you're at with things at the moment. What role do you see in kind of optimizing your environment to create these, these positive habits for yourself? Well, motivation is important, but it's only one factor that leads to behavior. So, and this is where environment can be quite useful. I like to break habits into four different stages. So this is something I cover in Atomic Habits, this book that I, that I finished. And the four stages are cue, craving, response, and reward. So first there's a cue, which is something that gets your attention. Often it's visual, but it doesn't have to be. So for example, you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. So that's a visual cue. The second step is the craving, which is how you interpret the cue. So it depends on your worldview, your frame of mind, your current state. So for example, if you are stuffed and full, if you just finished eating a meal and you see that plate of cookies, well, then you interpret the cue as, oh man, I'm full. I don't want to eat. But if you're hungry, or if you just have like, you're not totally stuffed from just eating, you may walk in and see the cue of the cookies and your prediction is different. Your craving is like, oh, okay, yeah, I should eat that. And it looks tasty. That second stage is what I would call the motivation stage or the desire stage. You have a motivation to eat the cookie after you see the cue. Then you take the action you eat it. And then the fourth step is the reward. Now, the crucial thing to realize is that the first three steps, cue, craving, and re response, um, are necessary to perform a habit the first time. If any one of those three things is not there, then you don't have a good reason to act. You, you, you either won't remember to act because you're not cued or triggered to do it. You won't have a desire to act because you don't have motivation or a craving, or you won't be able to act. You know, like you could say you want to dunk a basketball. You could see the hoop and really want to be able to dunk, but if you can't jump that high, it doesn't matter. The, the action is too difficult. So if any one of those three things is missing, the behavior is not going to occur. But if the fourth step, the reward is not there. If it's not satisfying after you do it, then you don't have a reason to repeat it in the future. And when I think about environment design, it fits well into stages one and three. So a good environment design, the things on your desk at work or your kitchen counter at home or in your bathroom can alter what you see, what you're prompted to do by the triggers. And it can also make the right behavior less frictionless and add friction to, to bad behaviors. So let me give you two examples. So for a long time, I would brush my teeth twice a day, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And when I went to the bathroom, I started to look at like all the different little behaviors that were part of that habit. 
And I realized that there was an issue, which is that the floss was tucked away in a drawer in the bathroom. So I wouldn't see it. So the, the trigger, the cue was not obvious. So I went and bought a little bowl and then got some of those pre-made flossers and put them in it and set it right next to my toothbrush. And so now I finished brushing my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick a flosser up and I just do it right then. And that was pretty much all I needed to now stick to this habit for however long it's been, five, six years to just do it without thinking. It was just a little environment design change that made the good behavior more obvious. So that's one example. Second example, take a habit that you want to reduce. So for example, many people believe that they watch too much TV each day. Well, if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the television. So it's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? Now there are varying things, varying degrees of things that you could do here. You could take a chair and turn it so it doesn't face the TV. You could take a remote and put it in the drawer and put a book in its place. You could take the TV and put it inside a wall unit or a cabinet so that you don't see it as often. If you wanted to get more extreme, you could like unplug the TV after each use and only plug it back in if you could say the name of the show you wanted to watch or take batteries out of the remote so that you force yourself to think for like an extra five seconds before you turn the TV on because you got to put the batteries in. Like, do I really want to watch this now? Um, and then at the far end, at the most extreme end, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out if you really wanted to watch something. But the point here is that environment design can be used to make the cues of your bad habits less obvious and also to increase the friction associated with the task. So things like unplugging the TV or taking the batteries out of the remote, it just increases the friction a little bit so that you can be mindful of it rather than being mindless and just fall into the same habit over and over again. So I think that those are, are kind of the primary ways to utilize environment design in your favor for either building good habits or breaking bad ones. Yeah. yeah. And when you're, when you're thinking about breaking bad habits, do you find that it's more effective to try and replace it with another habit or kind of create a positive habit that you want to sort of fit in there? Or with your research, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just the, the act of breaking the bad habit. Well, I think that, so I just, I just explained those four stages, cue, mm -hmm. craving, response, reward. And I think the most effective places to intervene for breaking a bad habit are stages one and three. So if you're at, if you have, let's say, uh, let's just talk about like smoking. So if you see a pack of cigarettes on the table, then you, the cue is already there. So that's the, you're already at stage one. Well, if you, if you have a bad habit of smoking, once you see the cigarettes, the craving is almost always going to arise naturally. You're going to like, it's just going to be there right away. You're going to feel an urge to smoke. So the second stage is a hard one because if you see the cue, you're probably going to feel the craving for your bad habit. You know, if you see the, the chips in the pantry, you're probably going to want to eat them if that's a bad habit for you. Then you have the behavior itself. And then the fourth stage is the reward. Well, at that point, the habit's already been performed, you know, like you're, it's kind of too late now, you know, like if you're trying to intervene at the reward stage, it's like, well, we've already, the, the actions already happened. So the two that you have left are stages one and three. So the first stage is to reduce exposure to negative cues. And in this case, I don't think you need to worry that much about replacing a habit with something. What I find is that often many of my habits will just kind of fade away on their own if I am not exposed to them or triggered by them. You know, like if you're trying to eat less, if you're trying to eat less food or eat less junk food, stop following food blogs on Instagram. You know, like, I mean, stop being triggered by that. If you're trying to reduce the amount of money that you spend on electronics, then don't follow the latest tech reviews or don't follow blogs that, you know, talk about that new gear and stuff. Stop following people who review it on Twitter or whatever. The less exposure that you have to those ideas, 
the less the cravings will arise because you're not being exposed to them or triggered by them. It's very rare for a, a I, in fact, I'm, I still question whether it's possible at all for a thought to arise spontaneously. I think it, when it does appear that we have spontaneous cravings, it probably is just a signal that we don't understand the, what caused it. Because if you, if you believe that a craving can arise spontaneously, that is, if you believe that a craving can arise with no cue prompting it, then you kind of are saying you don't necessarily believe in cause and effect, which is, you know, like one of the foundational things of the universe that we, we tend to, it seems that we all implicitly agree on. Because if there is no cause, then that's what makes it spontaneous. But if there is a cause, then there was a cue that led to the craving. And you may not understand what that cue is, but by getting a deeper understanding of what drove the craving is probably the place to intervene. The second option is to focus on the third step, which is to say, yeah, you might be prompted to perform a bad habit and you will still experience cravings at various times in your life. But when those cravings come, if you make it very difficult to perform the behavior, then you may be able to sit with the craving long enough to like ride it kind of like a wave and let it pass you by. And then you move on to the next thing that catches your attention. And so that's more about friction. And that's when you hear things like, don't have sweets in the house. Well, you, you know, you may still see an ad on television for a chocolate bar or something, and you may want to eat a sweet, but if it's not there, the friction is too high. You got to go down the road to the store and you're not going to end up doing that. Um, and so anytime you can like lock in your behavior in that way to, to increase the friction, that can be another effective way to break a bad habit. But I think generally speaking, those are probably your two most effective strategies are reduce exposure. So you don't think about it in the first place. And then when you do think about it, try to figure out a way to increase the friction associated with the task. So it's very hard for you to do. And I mean, yeah, the, the writing, the, the craving, actually, the, it, it's a concept called urge surfing and it's quite an effective one, actually, if, if you kind of can frame it right in your head to picture mm. that craving or that urge like a wave and just know that it's going to pass and just kind of ride through it and actually the you almost get a buzz doing that and kind of it, it ramps up your energy and almost gives you a little bit more motivation afterwards once you have successfully ridden through that wave to do it again the next couple of times well from a scientific standpoint it actually is a wave so you can when neuroscientists map dopamine levels in the brain what they see is that you'll you know you'll come across a cue and then you, the, your dopamine levels spike once you see the cue. So this is a little counterintuitive for people, but once you, the first time you experience something, you know, the first time that you play a slot machine or the first time you try a drug or the first time you eat a cookie, your dopamine spikes because it's like a surprise. It was like, whoa, that was really good. Like you should do that again next time. But once a habit has been formed, dopamine actually spikes before the, the action. So you, you see the cue, you know, like there've been studies done with cocaine addicts, for example. It's when they, when addicts see cocaine, then there's a spike in levels and anticipation. So that's the craving. That's that wave. That's the urge. And then once you actually perform the behavior, in this case, trying drugs, your dopamine actually drops back to baseline, drops back to what you expect because it matches your expectation. Like, yes, there was pleasure, but you were expecting it to be pleasure. That's why that, that spike was so high. So if you try a drug that isn't as good as you had expected, then your dopamine actually drops below baseline because your prediction was off. There was like a prediction error there. And if it's even better than you expected, then there was a, it's a little bit higher because there's a prediction error in the other way. Your expectations were off. They were too low. So 
Anyway, my point here is that there actually is kind of this wave-like pattern that's going on at a, at a biological level. And um, so those first two options that I gave, reduce exposure, increase friction so that you can kind of ride through that wave. And then the third option is the one that you asked when you posed the question, which is replacing it with something else. And I think that that can be effective. You know, if you realize that, let's say, for example, the cue is you get home from work and then the craving is you feel exhausted or tired and you want to resolve that stress. Well, habits are, one way to look at habits is that they're just the solutions you have developed to the problems that you face throughout life. So if you come home every day and you're tired and exhausted, you're looking for a solution that resolves that. And different people come into different solutions. Like one person might smoke a cigarette and that reduces stress. Another person might play video games for an hour and that reduces stress. A third person might go for a run for 20 minutes and that reduces stress. And I think this is an important point to realize because we often feel like we're maybe the victims of our habits rather than the architect of them. But your current habits, the original habit you learned is not necessarily the optimal habit for solving that problem. It's not necessarily the opt optimal solution. And so you can design a different solution that solves the same problem. If you come home and you're feeling stressed and every day you've been playing video games for an hour, but you don't wanna do that, you can design a new solution that solves the same problem, that resolves the same craving. So, you know, meditating for 10 minutes or going for a run or whatever. And that I think is an effective way to do what you, what you asked about is, you know, should you insert a new routine? And quite often, yeah, that can be an effective way to do it. It just depends on the particular circumstance. So I think you kind of have three options there for breaking a bad habit. You could either replace it, you could reduce exposure to it, or you could just make it so hard to do that you sit with it and let the craving ride. Yeah, no, I, they're, they're great options. And James, I mean, you're, you talk about getting yourself sorted. And if you get yourself sorted, then you end up having a ripple effect outwards. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure even you have some, uh, kind of subconscious cues that cause a craving at some point that you, that you still try and get rid of. When you were thinking about kind of designing a new habit for, for success for yourself, like, is there a process that you go through? Well, so I think that those four laws that are four stages that I mentioned with each one, I am this, I cover this in detail in the book there, I call them the four laws of behavior change. And it's sort of like each one is like a lever you can pull. And when the levers are in the right positions, building good habits is easy. And when they're in the wrong positions, building good habits is very difficult. And depending on the situation and what you're facing, different levers might need to be pulled. So one way that I like to do that is to map out the chain of behaviors that you need to go through to perform a habit and then try to figure out like, where are the points of friction and can I design a better way to, to go about that? So. For example, my mother, when she wanted to build an exercise habit, she realized that, well, she went to the gym a couple of times and tried it. But what she realized was that she, it wasn't that she didn't want to work out. It's that she didn't like working out in front of other people. So she was able to get like a home yoga program and uh, she went to work and then came home and laid out the yoga mat and was able to get her workouts in that way. So that's just one example. But the point is map out each behavior that you need to perform to do this habit and try to figure out where are the points of friction. And can you design a way to accomplish the same habit that doesn't include those points? Or can you prime the environment or take some actions ahead of time that reduce the friction of that particular area? And I think that's an effective way to get started. James, I mean, one thing that kind of we talked about before we started recording was um, 
kind of those those big goals at the at the end that are so far away from where you're at at the moment. And in one way that I like to think about it is kind of progressively expanding your comfort zone to get closer and closer to that goal. Like taking those taking those small steps, living on the edge, like we talked about initially with the developing curiosity and building learning. But in terms of People will often think that, hey, if I just make this small habit change, that's not really going to do that much for me. Because mm. a lot of the thinking is that, that short-term thinking, what do I get from this now? Can you, can you talk a little bit around sort of the, the power of developing good habits? In the long run, when we're thinking, hey, I've got this massive, massive goal that's kind of overwhelming me at the moment. Well, this is one of the challenges of habits, both in the sense that they can work for you and against you. And that is that the outcomes of your habits are often delayed, the true outcomes of them. So in the moment, it's very easy to overlook a behavior or a choice that's 1% better, 1% worse. You know, if you study tonight for 10 minutes, you're studying Chinese or something, you still haven't learned the language if you decide to study. And you're about at the same spot if you decide not to study. If you go to the gym for 20 minutes today, your body looks basically the same when you're in the mirror tonight. The scale doesn't really change that much. It's very easy to dismiss not doing those things because you don't feel the change on a daily basis. It's, it's, it's hard to see. But over the course of two or five or 10 years, those small 1% changes, the 1% improvement or 1% decline end up compounding. And that's when the full effects of your habits start to become apparent. And so there's, there's often this, what I call this valley of latent potential at the beginning of any task. So you can imagine, you know, say you're, you're heating up an ice cube. So you have an ice cube, it's like on the table, the room's cold, you can see your breath. And then, you know, maybe you're like five degrees below zero and then you heat it up four, three, two, one, still, there's still an ice cube there, but then at some point you get to this melting point, right? One degree shift, no different than any of the other shifts that came before it, but suddenly the ice cube starts to melt. You have this phase transition. And I like to use that as a metaphor for making positive changes as well. Like oftentimes early in the process, studying for another 20 minutes or going to the gym today, you don't see anything the same way you don't see any change in the ice cube, but complaining about putting in work for two months or five months or whatever it is, and not seeing a change is kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube up and not seeing it melt yet. The work is not being wasted. It's just being stored. And so you need to continue to stick with it until you get to this phase transition, this tipping point so that you can actually see the change. Um, and that can be hard to remember in the moment when you're struggling and dealing with it. And so I, that's the one reason why I think, and this is what I call the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is that. Behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated. Behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. And so it's very important to have some kind of immediate satisfaction, even if it's small early on, so that you have a reason to continue. You know, like people who go to the gym, a lot of times folks will say, oh, they're really good at delaying gratification because they, you know, they work out and they sweat and sacrifice each day. And, you know, you aren't going to get fit for three months or six months or whatever. But Part of me thinks, you know, like for me, that's not how it feels when I go to the gym. It doesn't feel like it's all sacrifice. Like I get to see some of my friends. I enjoy moving. It feels good to, to like be the type of person who doesn't miss workouts and kind of cast a vote for that identity. And those are all immediate benefits. And so in a lot of ways, I think the people who are good at delaying gratification, whether it's 
working out consistently or studying more or making more sales calls or working on your business before you have seen the results or writing a book, even though it's going to be a year before it's published. The people who are good at doing that, they just find alternative ways to be satisfied in the moment, to have a little bit of a positive emotional signal associated with that, that they feel right then, because then they have a reason to show up again the next day. So it is true that the ultimate results and rewards of your habits are they compound and they are uh, delayed and it will take a while for those to show up, but you can help overcome that a little bit by having an immediate reward that gives you this positive signal in the moment and a reason to show up again tomorrow. Yeah. And I, I like that actually. And like, is there a question, if you're looking for an immediate re reward in this, in this situation, in this habit that you're wanting to create, is there a question that you ask yourself to kind of make that a, immediate reward a little bit more clear? Well, you can do it in a couple of different ways. I mean, one way is that you can, you know, give yourself some kind of external reward. So, you know, the common one is something like, oh, if you work out, you know, four days this week, then you get to take a bubble bath or you good to go for a walk. Or, you know, if you save, you know, for a month or something and you can go get a pedicure or whatever, like that, that kind of thing. But the ultimate form of an intrinsic immediate reward is a reaffirmation of your desired identity. So the question you can ask yourself is not, what do I want to achieve, which would lead you to things like, I want to make six figures this year. Or I want to lose, you know, a certain amount of weight in the next six months, or I want to finish a book or whatever. But the question to ask yourself is who is the type of person that could achieve that goal? So, you know, then you realize, all right, well, the type of person that could write a book is the type of person who writes one sentence each day. And then you focus on being, developing that kind of identity. So. Now, each time you sit down to write, as long as you write one sentence, you get the immediate reward of being that person. It's almost like every action you take casts a vote for the type of person that you want to become. And the more that you cast those votes and develop and build up evidence of this new identity, the more you start to get linked to that and want to reinforce that. So I think the, the ultimate form of an immediate reward is a reinforcement of your desired identity. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. And James, I mean, almost kind of the, the ultimate in the, one of the ultimate endpoints of habits is, is having a, to publish. Mm. And, uh, and your book, Atomic Habits, is, well, when we release this podcast, it'll be out now or it might be the day before in New Zealand that it is in the States. So it might be coming out tomorrow over here. How has that process been for you in creating a book about something you're obviously so passionate about? Yeah, it was interesting. It's kind of like your own little experiment on yourself to, you know, see if you can put the ideas into practice and where, you know, where will you struggle and where will, where will it come easier? So, I, I mean, I learned a lot, you know, I mean, first of all, I, I've said this many times, but I, my readers and I are peers, you know, we're all going through this together. The only difference is when I learn something, I just write about it and share it with everybody. But, you know, there's no, I don't have this like mastered on a personal level. So, I, I learned a lot about my own habits and what I needed to focus on. One thing that really surprised me throughout the process was that I didn't realize how much I thrived on feedback from my work. You know, when I write an article, I'll work on it for a couple of days and, you know, sometimes a week, and then I publish it and I get feedback almost instantly. I mean, within an hour or two, I'm getting emails from people who read it and what they thought. And I always thought that was very nice, but I didn't realize how much I really thrived on that, how much that like fed my energy to write again or to write the next article. With the book, it was the opposite. You know, you write and you write and you write, and then it's like you're just working in a cave for months on end. Nobody has seen it yet. 
So I, I hit a point about a year in, it took me three years from start to finish to, to write the book. And uh, I hit a point a year in where it was really hard for me. And it wasn't until I hired an editor to actually just get some feedback. I mean, I, I don't need to send it to everybody. I just need to have something that, that helped a lot. So yeah, I think feedback was, that was definitely one area where I learned. Interesting. And James, your book is called Atomic Habits. Who should be reading this and where, sh where can they go and get it from? Well, it's a dangerous thing for an author to say that everybody should read their book, <laughs> but the truth is all humans do have habits and you're building them whether you're thinking about it or not. So if you're interested in designing your habits rather than just kind of letting them happen haphazardly, I think you'd find the book useful. If you're the type of person who is interested in self-improvement or you have some kind of goal that you'd like to accomplish, I think you'll find it useful. And if you're the type of person who works with other people and you would like them to have better habits, whether it's coworkers or teammates or children or people in your community, then I think you would find it useful. It's, it's, uh, the book is, it's meant to be a practical guide that people can implement, but it's also a deeper discussion about human behavior and how it works and why people behave the way they do and what we can do to, you know, to subtly nudge ourselves and others towards a more productive behaviors. So it's called Atomic Habits. You can get it at atomichabits.com. And also at that site are available some additional resources. Like we have a couple chapters that are bonus chapters that are not included in the book. We have cheat sheet that has kind of every practical, actionable point from the book, like laid out in just a, a simple format and a variety of other exercises and templates. So atomichabits.com is the best place to, to go. Awesome. James, I've got a couple of quick questions for you that I like to ask everyone at the end of the chat. And the first is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? Well, I'm not sure if this is the last one, but this is the one I just thought of a couple months ago. I, I really had a, so I, I do, I write, but I also, the two other main interests I have are weightlifting and travel photography. And I really had this shot that I had researched in the South of France that I wanted to take. And I didn't know it's a, it's of these lavender fields and you can't predict when it's going to happen. So anyway, I booked the trip on my best guess, hoping that it would be there and went over and long story short, uh, the, I had to end up squeezing the trip in, in four days. So I went from the U S to France, shooting these lavender fields and back in four days, which is tight. And then I also had to get up at like 4 AM each day to go take photos. But because of how the light was working out, I couldn't go to bed until like midnight or one. So I basically, I was like operating on like two or three hours of sleep for a couple of days, which was for me very uncomfortable because I am a huge baby about sleep. And so in addition to being in a foreign country in the time zone and so on, getting that shot was more challenging than I thought it would be. But I am happy to report that I was able to get the shot that I had planned for and hoped for. So, so that's great. So that's the, that's the first one that came to oh, mind. Nice, nice. What's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? Well, the next uncomfortable thing is certainly launching the book and it's uncomfortable for me probably for two major reasons. The first one is a simple one, but you know, I have a couple TV interviews associated with the book and generally speaking, I feel very uncomfortable on video text and audio are fine, but video doesn't feel natural to me. Um, and of course there's the fear about live television, you know, like if you say something stupid on a recorded show, well, then you can cut it out later. If you say something stupid live, well, too bad. So, so there's that fear, but the bigger one is about whether or not people will like the book, you know, like, I mean, right now I, I always, I said, as I was working on this, one of my 
thresholds was that I want to write a book I feel proud of. And sitting here, as we record this a few weeks before the book is public, I do feel proud of what I wrote, but it will be very interesting to see how the public reception alters that. You know, will I, mm. what if you catch up with me six months from now and people don't like it as much as I had hoped, will I still feel proud of it? Or what if people love it? Will I, will that like change how I feel about it? I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see how that, how that alters things. And what I've noticed even just so far is that it's very hard to not take someone's reaction of the book personally, because when you work on a project for three years, in a sense, it's kind of an extension of you. It, it sort of like is my last three years encapsulated in a book form. So if you don't like the book, it sort of feels like you don't like who I've been recently, which is certainly not true and not how the reader is seeing it in their mind, but is difficult for me to like divorce that from, from my own thoughts. So there's some, there's definitely like some psychological challenges associated with yeah. it, which will be interesting. I think it's really hard to disassociate yourself from from any creative pro project that you're putting out there when you're getting feedback on it that, that feels like, hey, if you don't like this, then you don't like me. Mm. But I mean, are you, are you documenting how you feel about it at the moment in terms of how proud you are so you can come back and look at it later? Yeah, so I do, I have kept a journal or a diary or whatever you want to call it throughout this process. I'll actually be sharing some of that publicly just to show people what kind of the inside of writing this book process has been like. So that will help a little bit, I think, with maybe keeping me grounded with where I was or yeah, how, where I was at various points in the process. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, to see how I deal with it. One strategy that I've taken so far as well that I think could be useful is scientists update their beliefs. As new evidence comes, becomes available, they alter what they think based on how the body of evidence is shifting. And I think in a way I should treat the book in a similar fashion. You know, I spent three years on it. So it's like the most polished first draft you've ever seen, but I should view it as like a first draft, you know, like this is my, my first stab at how human behavior really works. And based on the feedback, rather than crumbling under the criticism or ignoring it, what I should do is use that to update my beliefs for next time. And some of the criticism won't be relevant, but some of it will be. And if that's the case, then great. At some point, maybe I can do a revised and expanded edition and it'll be even better for all the, the feedback. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see how that goes for you. So I'll, I might flick you an email in a couple of months time and just see how you, yeah, see, see what your comments on it are. Um, yes, please do. James, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about designing habits and, and they're an integral part of kind of approaching any uncomfortable situations. Do you have any other ways that you use to approach uncomfortable situations other than kind of designing, designing your habits around that? The most effective strategy that I have found for dealing with uncomfortable situations is surrounding myself with people who have already dealt with similar situations in the, the past, especially the recent past. So, you know, for example, as I was getting ready to work on this book, I started hosting a couple retreats for authors. So most of the time it was like six, seven, eight people. And most of the people who attended, the authors who attended had previously written a book or, you know, within the last say five years. So they had been where I was going relatively soon. So there was all kinds of guidance and ideas that they were able to share with me. But I think more important than that 
is that I was able to start to view this thing that was feeling very uncomfortable for me as normal. The tribes that we are a part of, the groups, the subcultures, whether it's, you know, something large, like, you know, being American or being French or something like that, or being a Christian or being a Muslim or something small, like being a member of your local CrossFit gym or being a member of, you know, whatever the volunteer organization is that you work with. The, every tribe has a set of behaviors that are normal or standard for them that are expected, these kind of social norms. And you can hang out with people where your desired behavior is the normal behavior or your, the behavior that you are, that's pushing you, that has you feeling uncomfortable is more normal for them. They've been through it already. It starts to become easier for you to view it as normal as well and, and expand that kind of that circle of your comfort. So. That, that doesn't make it automatically easy. Any new event like that, whether it's pushing yourself physically or mentally, requires a level of effort and hard work for you to, to adapt to this new level of training. But seeing other people be able to do it is a good way to, to both motivate yourself to do it and to kind of reframe your expectations. Now I'm like, I'm, it's making me think of a, a friend of ours. They have a, a young child and they had been keeping the kid at home, but then they recently put them into a daycare unit and the girl was the only child that was in daycare who wasn't walking yet. And within like three days she was walking because she, all of a sudden she's in this social environment where she's seeing everybody else walk who looks just like her. And she's like, oh, well I can do that too. And I think that the same kind of strategy works on adults as it does on kids, which is the more normal a behavior seems, the easier it becomes for us to get over our mental blocks and start to get into the work. That makes complete sense, but is also super interesting at the same time. James, I have one more quick question for you, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down and chat habits with me. But also thank you as well for, like, I've been following your work for the last couple of years, and I, it has definitely made changes in my life for the better in terms of implementing some of the stuff that you have been talking about. So I really appreciate that, mate. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's great to hear that. And I'll do my best to keep useful ideas coming your way. Good, good. Thank you. Do you have a challenge to leave us with this week? So something to keep in mind when it comes to building better habits or changing your behavior is that the phrase I like to use is you need to optimize for the starting line rather than the finish line. So almost always the process of picking a goal or trying something new begins with, most people suggest it should begin with setting this ambitious goal and trying to take on, you know, this like this big vision. But many people have heard, oh, you should start small. But even when you've heard that, even when you know you should start small, it's easy to start too big. So you kind of let your, your ego gets a hold of you. So for example, you say you want to get in shape and you're like, all right, I'm going to go for a run, but I know I should start small. So I'm only going to run for 15 minutes. But even that is like way bigger than what I'm talking about. In the rule that I would recommend you stick to is what I call the two minute rule. So you take whatever habit or behavior that you're trying to build and scale it down to just the first two minutes. So in the case of running, it's like put on your running shoes and step out the door. I had a, a reader who actually employed a similar idea. He, he lost over a hundred pounds and the way that he did it was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So. He would show up each day, do one exercise or something, five minutes would come and then he'd leave. And he did this for like six weeks. And it sounded crazy to people, you know, uh, it's very different than what most people do when they try to get in shape. But what you realize when you step back a little bit and look at it is that he was mastering the art of showing up. So, so often people try to do something big and impressive, 
but they don't master the art of showing up. You need a habit needs to be established before it can be improved. You know, so if you, if you don't actually do the thing each day, if you don't do the first two minutes, you don't have a choice or a chance to optimize. So my encouragement, my challenge would be to take whatever behavior you're looking to, to build a habit out of, scale it down to the first two minutes, and then spend a few weeks just mastering that. Master the art of showing up. Give yourself the chance to optimize and improve and expand from there. And if you can do that, then you have all sorts of choices. But, but if you never, if you never, if you can't get the first two minutes figured out, you don't have much hope of, of building a better habit in the long run. That's a brilliant challenge. James Clear, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with us today. I always love these conversations. If you want to have a, hear a guest, if you want to have a topic explored, if you want to ask a question, please send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz uh, and we can get onto that for you. If you want to support the show, the best way that you can do that is subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure to share it out with some of your mates as well. Thank you to Health Mentors, the sponsor of the show today. If you want to improve your health and your performance in the middle of a chaotic world, make sure to check out healthmentors.nz or send an email to chris at healthmentors.nz for a no-obligation chat. Thank you so much to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music to the show. And thank you to you guys for tuning in and listening all the way to the end. We'll see you all again next week.